Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. A Code of Education in the Gospels by Art Middlecoff, recorded live at the 2022 Gospel Vision for Children Conference. Several years ago, a good friend of mine told me that he had been asked by his church to teach a class for some of the children. And he had never done anything like this before, so he was not sure what to do or what to expect, but he said he would do it anyway. The church leadership gave him some materials that he was supposed to use, and he read through it all very carefully. Shortly before the first class, the mother of one young boy called him aside. She said she wanted to warn him about her little boy. She said he did not respond well in church classes like this. She told my friend Paul not to feel bad if her son doesn't say anything during class. It's not your fault, she said. It's his. My friend thought about this little boy, and he looked again at the materials he'd been given, and he began to think deeply about teaching. What is the best way to communicate spiritual truth to this boy, to any child? In fact, what is the best way to educate anyone about anything? Now, there are many places my friend could go to find an answer. He could look to tradition. He could look to the way his church had always done this class. He could look at the way the church has always taught through the centuries. He could look to psychology and social science. He could look at the studies and research which point to the most effective way to teach. He could draw from the best experiments and apply this teaching to his own practice. But my friend had a vague sense that maybe there was something better he could turn to than tradition or research to find his way. Only a few years before, he had had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. He had found his Savior. Now, he worshipped Jesus. He followed Jesus. He trusted Jesus. And so he had to ask himself this question. Can I teach like Jesus? In 1890, the Reverend Henry Latham was the master of Trinity Hall in Cambridge. He had been ordained by the Church of England 42 years before. And like my friend Paul, he worshipped Jesus. He followed Jesus and he trusted Jesus. In fact, he had dedicated his life to studying the ways of Christ and teaching his countless students in Cambridge. Through all these years of study, however, he focused on one very specific topic. In 1890, his lifetime of reading and reflection came to culmination in the printing of a book, and he called it Pastor Pastorum. And Pastor Pastorum is Latin for shepherd of shepherds. And this title, Shepherd of Shepherds, brings to mind a passage from the first letter of Peter. Shepherd, the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, the shepherd of shepherds, pastor pastorum, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And so the subtitle of this book was The Schooling of the Apostles by Our Lord. So Latham had spent his life investigating a very specific question. How did Jesus go about teaching his own disciples? And his book, Pastor Pastorum, contained his answer. Now he decided to structure his book according to the chronology of Christ's earthly ministry. So he went from Galilee to Jerusalem to the cross and to the ascension, sharing his insights along the way. However, rather than saving his big-picture conclusion for the end, he included them in an introductory chapter in the front. 
And this introductory chapter explained the most vital, the most fundamental principle that he believed characterized the teaching ministry of our Lord. And he summarized it this way. Our Lord was a teacher of a very different kind. He reverenced whatever the learner had in him of his own and was tender in fostering this native growth. Men, in his eyes, were not mere clay in the hands of the potter, matter to be molded into shape. They were organic beings, each growing from within with a life of his own, a personal life which was exceedingly precious in his eyes and in his father's eyes. And he would foster this growth so that it might take after the highest type. Later in the book, he discusses Luke chapter 9, 57 to 62. And this is the passage where three different people come to follow Christ, and each received a different answer. And Latham wrote, this individualizing in our Lord's treatment of men struck the disciples as something new. To our Lord's eye, every human being had a moral and spiritual physiognomy of his own. He saw at once what it was in each man which went to make him emphatically and distinctly his very self and he addressed himself largely to this. And so Latham distills this concept down to a single sentence as early as page five in his book. Jesus cherishes and respects personality. Now in our modern usage, I think this word personality has lost its original depth. So to make the point a little more clear, I might say that the first principle of Christ's method of teaching is this, cherish and respect personhood. In this opening chapter, Latham talks about what makes an individual's personhood. Early on, he makes a very striking observation. Our Lord never transforms men so as to obliterate their old nature and substitute a new one. New powers and new life spring up from contact with him, but the powers work through the old organs, and the life flows through the old channels. They would not be the same men or preserve their individual responsibility if it were otherwise. In other words, Jesus recognized that there was some good in the nature of the people he met. As even John Calvin himself said, Jesus did not see, quote, man's nature as wholly corrupted, end quote. He knew that men were created in the image of their heavenly father. Even the most precious qualities of faith, hope, and love were not something alien to the disciples. Rather, they existed, even if only in embryonic form, in the hearts of these fallen men. When I say that the apostles were taught faith, I use the word taught in a different sense from that it has when it is applied to other subjects of knowledge. I mean that through wise moral treatment, a quality existing only as a rudiment was so developed as to fit the disciples for communion with God. And not only did they in this sense learn faith, but what also need learning more than we suppose, love and hope as well. And so here we find, I think, a second principle. Persons possess inherently good as well as evil in their nature. According to Latham, the profound reverence of our Lord towards the individual disciples dramatically affected his manner of teaching. Latham writes, he was so tender in preserving every line of individuality that he would not shackle freedom of growth in his disciples. Christ refused to violate the personhood of his disciples. Jesus did not make them all copies after one pattern. That which was native to the man and which marked him off from all other men was lovingly preserved. He intensified in each man his proper life, which grew with all the greater vigor through being left to follow its own bent. Christ's way of teaching is the very opposite of that which would make the learner a mere reflection of his master. He refused to impose qualities from without. Our Lord will not even make men better by action on them from without. He will not change their being by any spiritual action without their cooperation. Belief was to grow 
and not to be imposed. He gave the disciples space to question and grow at their own pace. He had kept their self-helpfulness alive in various ways. We find them bold to question and not slow to murmur. And both questions and murmurs are readily tolerated by our Lord. From this, we can draw a third principle. Personhood must not be encroached upon by the teacher. So if Jesus did not impose from without or force violent changes to the heart or character of his students, how did he teach them? Latham's book points out three primary ways. The first is through the ideas he presented. Jesus describes his own teaching as follows. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Latham explains this very verse as follows. He, Jesus, gave seed thoughts, which should lie in men's hearts and germinate when fit occasion came. Jesus did not teach flat facts or dry conclusions. He spoke words that directly prompted thought and growth. Latham calls this the secret of all learning. The meaning of these new utterances gave men some pains to find, and when they had found it, they delighted in it as something that they had conquered for themselves. Our Lord lets men into this secret of all learning. Did they suffer the words of his, which were spirit and which were life, to be planted in their hearts, turning them over in their minds again and again? Latham gives a specific example of this form of teaching. In Luke 7.15, we read, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Latham comments as follows, When the apostles said, increase our faith, he worked no sudden change in them, but he pointed out to them the efficacy of faith in order that by longing for it, they might attain to it. He gave them a living idea. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. So our next principle is this. The first instrument of education is the presentation of living ideas. However, it is clear that these ideas which Christ presented were not meant to be theoretical only. He made it clear that his words were to be put into practice. In Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Latham comments on this verse, there were many hearers who would put our Lord's precepts away somewhere in their memory and be satisfied with possessing right and beautiful thoughts without carrying them into practice, keeping them like curios in a drawer. These were like men building on the earth who do only just what the moment requires. But the habit formed by steady obedience effects a structural change in the man's own mind. Latham understood, as our Lord must have too, that habit is not merely a spiritual phenomenon. We know from neurobiology that repeated action do indeed change the physical structure of the brain. And this, I think, is the principle that we find in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Jesus encouraged his disciples in the repetition of good actions until these good actions became habits. They became slaves of righteousness. And so here we find the second instrument of education. The second instrument of education is the formation of habit. 
But Jesus did not teach only by words. The disciples were with Christ day in and day out. They traveled with him, ate with him, and ministered with him. And due to this continual proximity with him, they began to absorb his values. Latham explains, the disciples marked also Christ's beneficence, his eagerness to render kindness, his gentleness and rebuke, his never recurring to a bygone fault, and this sense of being beloved, this living in an atmosphere of affection generated in them the capacity for loving. Just as the home love that is round a child not only awakens in it affection to those who show affection toward it, but teaches it what love is and engenders it in a great outcome of lovingness, which it strews, broadcasts, and bestows not only on persons, but on animals and even on inanimate things. So we see that the third instrument of education is atmosphere. Now, earlier I mentioned that Latham said that Christ was a teacher of a very different kind. One difference is in his conception of the role of the teacher versus the role of the student. The natural tendency is for a teacher to think that he is responsible for the education of the student. It is his work which achieves the result. But with Christ, the part that the student had to do himself went for infinitely more than what was done for him by the teacher. Nowhere is this principle more evident than in Christ's use of parables. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus shares the parable of the sower along with its interpretation. And Latham explains what happens next. And then comes a discourse explaining for what purposes the teaching by parables was employed which throws a strong light both on this matter and on education in its highest sense. Here, the principle comes to the front that it is not so much what is done upon the man or for the man as what is done by the man himself that transforms him into a higher creature. Parables forced the students to do the work of learning. The crowd that gathered there heard a teaching new to the world, both in matter and in form. But what they heard now was not precept, but on the face of it, only a simple tale. This, they would say, is all well, but how is it like the kingdom of God? They were no longer given instruction in a condition ready for use, but only material from which they should extract it for themselves. And to do this, they must both use their wits and have their hearts alive to God. Latham says that Christ was unique in this respect. Among the great teachers of the world, there is hardly one whose chosen pupils have received so few tenets in a formulated shape as those of Christ. And yet the apostles at the time of the ascension have undergone a transformation compared with what they were when our Lord first found them greater than was ever wrought in men in the same time before. Latham summarizes the role of the teacher in this way. Which is it that sways us most? Is it the teacher who tells us, this is the way you are to think, this is what you are to believe, and what you are to do? Or is it the friend who blends his life and heart and mind with ours, with whom we argue and differ, but take something each from the other, which assimilates with what is most our own, surely we yield more freely to the one who helps to foster our particular personality than him who would thrust it aside and replace it by his own. Now Christ, as portrayed in the Gospels, is such a friend. He trusts to men's believing that the Father is in him, not because he declared it in set dogmas, but because he has been so long with them. So here we might say is another principle of education. The stress of education should be placed upon the student and not upon the teacher. Now, interestingly, the life of a disciple was not one of monastic seclusion and contemplation. 
Latham observes that the disciples were mentally and physically healthy, and he explains why. This health of theirs came in great measure from their being constantly employed about matters of which their hearts were full. The training of the apostles fulfills all the conditions for sound spiritual health. The twelve led lives of -of out-of-door labor, with constant change of scene, with varied interests, with occupations to engage their minds. Some had the provisioning to see to, some the contributions, some were sent on in advance to secure lodging, and some wrought works of healing in their master's name. All this was conducive to their becoming self-helpful, fertile in practical resource, as well as earnestly devoted to their master, confident both of his power and of that delegated to themselves. At the same time, this regular occupation though sufficient to prevent any evil spirit finding in them a corner empty, swept, and garnished, yet was not absorbing or exhausting. It left their minds and wills free play. They could fall into groups as they chose. They could talk freely on the way. They could debate on the meaning of a parable or on the nature and time of coming of the kingdom of heaven. In Marvin Wilson's 1989 book, Our Father Abraham, he makes a similar observation. Not in synagogue classrooms, but on hillsides, in fields, and in remote locations, this Galilean carpenter's son clustered many pupils about him. And so from this, we get our next observation. The fullness of education includes rich and varied occupations, including out-of-door life. Latham mentioned that the disciples had time to reflect and debate on the meaning of the parables and the other teaching they were hearing. He sees in this an intentional element of our Lord's approach to teaching. In all his sayings and doings, our Lord was most careful to leave the individual room to grow. But what does that mean to leave room to grow? Latham explains, a great truth is brought to light by an incident of wonder, a pregnant word is let drop, a hard parable is delivered now and then, but between whiles, the disciples are left to dwell on their own thoughts as their fishing boat sails along or as they follow their master among the northern hills. Our Lord is ever bent on making men thoughtful and on calling out in each the inner life which is proper to the man. And for this, tranquility, or at least frequent opportunity for quiet communing with their own thoughts, was absolutely required. The disciples were not passive learners. In fact, no true learning is passive. The apostles were not mere recipients, as the crowd had been. They were not mere passive hearers receiving and storing wise sayings. What they heard was meant to set their minds at work, and the good they got from it depended on themselves. And Latham notes what happens when students don't have the opportunity to reflect for themselves on the material they are taking in. When subordinates or young people are too long deprived of opportunity for judging and acting for themselves, their minds are apt to become passive and purely receptive. They become slow to start a notion or suggest an expedient. Ideas of theirs, they fancy, are not wanted. And so they soon cease to have ideas at all. Our Lord wanted disciples who would have ideas. So he gave them time to think. And he listened to what they had to say. This gives us our next principle of education. Knowledge is not assimilated until it is acted upon. Now, up to this point, we've been talking about living ideas which are good in nature. But our Lord knew that we all hear evil ideas as well. When he was tempted by the devil, Jesus himself heard the satanic voice presenting deadly ideas to his ear. Latham believes this temptation of our Lord was instructive to the disciples also. He puts it this way. Jesus recognizes a personal, spiritual influence presenting evil thoughts to the minds of men. The man remaining free to choose 
whether he will entertain these suggestions or not. So I might restate that as this following principle, the chief responsibility of us as persons is the acceptance or rejection of ideas. Now the disciples do not remain students. They become shepherds or pastors themselves. Even while Jesus was among them, he sent them out two by two on missions of preaching and teaching. They felt what it was like to have authority. Jesus shared with them a truth about teaching. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Latham had a very interesting perspective on the timing of this word to the disciples. He said, the disciples are in danger of being elated at finding themselves teachers when they had so lately been learners. They might lean to correction and might incline to be over busy in giving direction and in finding fault. They might persuade themselves that they too thought only of the learner's good when in reality there was mixed with this a good spice of the love of exercising superiority. The text has another application besides this. The pupil, when perfected, would stand on a level with his master. The latter, the master, had no indefeasible superiority. When they had lighted the lamps of others, the light of the rest would be just as bright as their own. So in other words, while they exercised their Christ-given authority, this authority did not make them better than their subjects. They only had a limited or delegated authority, and they themselves remained under command. We could say it this way. Human authority is not intrinsic, but is given and circumscribed by God. So now we actually have a pretty complete set of educational principles that Latham derived from his lifetime study of the record of Christ in the Gospels. Now I want to stress that he did not provide these principles in an actual list as I have done. These sentences are my own paraphrases of his key points, but I hope you will agree from what I have shared of his own writing that this is an accurate summary of his conclusions. Now at this point, you may say, well, yes, this is how Jesus taught his disciples, but they were grown men. What does this have to do with the teaching of children? Now, during the many years that Latham was studying the teaching methods of Christ, prior to the publication of his book, another member of the Church of England was hard at work. Her name was Charlotte Mason, and she was struggling as a teacher. She described her plight as follows. I had at that time just begun to teach and was young and enthusiastic in my work. It was, to my mind, a great thing to be a teacher. It was impossible but that the teacher should leave his stamp on the children. But all this zeal notwithstanding, the disappointing thing was that nothing extraordinary happened. The children were good on the whole because they were the children of parents who had themselves been brought up with some care. But it was plain that they behaved very much as towards their nature too. The faults they had, they kept. The virtues they had were exercised just as fitfully as before. The good, meek little girl still told fibs. The bright, generous child was incurably idle. In lessons, it was the same thing. The dawdling child went on dawdling. The dull child became no brighter. It was very disappointing. The children, no doubt, got on. But each of them had the makings in her of a noble character of a fine mind. And where was the lever to lift each of these little worlds? Charlotte Mason was looking for a better way to teach. As my friend Paul, who had been asked to teach a children's class at church, there were many places that she could go to find an answer. She could look to tradition. She could teach the way the church has always taught through the centuries. But here's what she found. She said, looking for guidance to the literature of education, I learned much from various sources, though I failed to find what seemed to me an authoritative guide. That is, one whose thought embraced the possibilities contained in the human nature of a child. 
and at the same time measured the scope of education. And then something extraordinary happened. One day she was contemplating these passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Like so many of us, she had been taught to see these verses primarily as exhortations for adults. Adult, become like a little child. Everyone seemed to say that these verses were describing the grown-up people who had become as little children. But one day she had a revolutionary thought. What if these verses were taken at face value? What if these verses were telling us not about the nature of adults, but about the nature of children? The more she thought about it, the more convinced she became that in these verses we have the divine estimate of the child's estate. Looking at the gospel with new eyes, she focused on three more verses. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. From these three verbs, offend, despise, and hinder, she wrote the following. Take heed that ye offend not, despise not, hinder not one of these little ones. And she called this a code of education in the Gospels. In 2017, Dr. Benjamin Bernier commented on this discovery. As far as I have been able to trace, Mason was the first Christian educator to define a connection between these words of Christ and a philosophy of education. In 1885, Mason shared her discovery publicly five years before Latham published his book. Her code of education in the Gospels was immediately picked up by leaders in the church. In 1890, Archdeacon Richard Blunt directly quoted Charlotte Mason and wrote, let us then listen to the words of Christ regarding the children. And first, his prohibitions, despise not, offend not, hinder not, one of these little ones. In that same article, Blunt made this amazing statement. He wrote, It has been lately said that the child as an object of public solicitude and of social obligation, the most sacred, is entirely a modern Discovery. There is a good deal of truth in that statement, he said. For although potentially this solicitude for children was contained in Christ's treatment of them and commands concerning them, practically it has taken centuries to arouse the conscience of Christendom to the duty of copying his example and of doing his behest. True, the doctrine of the incarnation involved the sacredness of childhood, the life of the child Jesus, hallowed all child life. Christian art in its devotional representations of the divine child in his mother's arms enshrined it. But even chivalry failed to secure for childhood any share of the glory with which it surrounded womanhood. Long centuries ago, said Blunt, Christ set the child in the midst and there the Christian church ought always to have beheld it. But at last, we are beginning to understand his divine purpose and are learning to minister to each side of child life. According to Blunt, Mason's discovery of the code of education in the Gospels was awakening Christendom 
to something it should have known all along. Mason wrote, we must either reverence or despise children. This is very important. And while we regard them as incomplete and undeveloped beings who will one day arrive at the completeness of man, rather than as weak and ignorant persons whose ignorance we must inform and whose weakness we must support, but whose personalities are as great as our own, we cannot do otherwise than despise children. However, kindly and even tenderly, we commit the offense. So here we have the crux of the issue. Was Christ's method of teaching only a method for how to teach adults? Or was he modeling the way to teach children also? The answer, I think, depends on this question. Are children born persons? Remember Latham's first principle, cherish and respect personhood. Combine that with Mason's insight that children are born persons. You combine those two, and you have a revolution. Charlotte Mason wrote in 1911, we believe that the first article of our educational creed, children are born persons, is of a revolutionary character. For what is a revolution but a complete reversal of attitude? And by the time, say, in another decade or two, that we have taken in this single idea, we shall find that we have turned around, reversed our attitude towards children, not only in a few particulars, but completely. Dr. Bernier stated that Mason was the first Christian educator to highlight these set of teachings of Christ as a code of law setting the boundaries for the education of children. What does it mean to offend not? Mason said that we offend children when we do by them that which we ought not to have done. She gives several examples. When we fail to recognize that children are born with a conscience and with an inherent sense of may and must not, of right and wrong. We offend when we fail to act as if we ourselves are bound by the law of God. We offend our children when we fail to attend to their physical needs. We offend the children when we give them dreary, dawdling lessons in which definite progress is the last thing made or expected. We offend children when we fail to give them opportunities to develop their God-given love of others. What does it mean to despise not? Mason said that to despise is to have a low opinion of, to undervalue. She said that we undervalue our children when we allow them to imitate bad patterns rather than good. She said that we despise children when we allow them to form and persist in bad habits rather than setting to work early to form good habits in them. What does it mean to hinder not? Mason said that we hinder when we overlook and make light of the child's natural relationship with Almighty God. Charlotte Mason wrote this, and perhaps it is not too beautiful a thing to believe in this redeemed world that as the babe turns to his mother, though he has no power to say her name, as the flowers turn to the sun, so the hearts of the children turn to their Savior and God with unconscious delight and trust. Here's how we hinder children. The mischief lies in the same foolish undervaluing of the children, in the notion that the child can have no spiritual life until it pleases his elders to kindle the flame. But if coming to Jesus, as Mason said, is the natural thing for the children to do, the thing that they do when they are not hindered by their elders, then how can we help rather than hinder? Charlotte Mason explains it this way. She says, this holy mystery, this union and communion of God and the child, how may human parents presume to meddle with it? What can they do? How can they promote it? And is there not every risk that they may lay rude hands upon the ark like Uzzah? 
In the first place, it does not rest with the parent to choose whether he will or will not attempt to quicken and nourish the divine life in his child. To do so is his bounden duty and service. If he neglect or fail in this, I'm not sure how much it matters that he has fulfilled his duties in the physical, moral, and mental culture of his child, except insofar as the child is the fitter for the divine service should the divine life be awakened in him. But what can the parent do? Just this and no more. He can present the idea of God to the soul of the child. So there's that word again, idea. And what is an idea? Here's how Charlotte Mason defines it. An idea is more than an image or a picture. It is, so to speak, a spiritual germ endowed with vital force, with power that is to grow and to produce after its kind. It is the very nature of an idea to grow. As the vegetable germ secretes that which it lives by, so fairly implant an idea in the child's mind, and it will secrete its own food, grow and bear fruit in the form of a succession of kindred ideas. So an idea is not a fact. An idea is not a summary. An idea is not a creed. An idea is not a rule. Remember what Latham found in the words of Christ. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits for nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So ideas are spirit and life. But Mason believed that there were other living ideas out there besides just the words of Jesus which are recorded in the Gospels. She believed what the Apostle John wrote when he said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this passage, Word is the Greek word logos. It means more than just a word in a sentence. It means God's knowing, reasoning, and meaning are all personified in our Lord Jesus Christ. This led Mason to affirm that ideas emanating from our Lord and Savior, which are of his essence, are the spiritual meat and drink of his believing people. And so tying together verses from Matthew chapter 4, John chapter 6, and Revelation chapter 22, she states, the bread of life, the water of life, the word by which man lives, the meat to eat which ye not know of, and much more, cease to be figurative expressions, except that we must use the same words to name the corporeal and incorporeal sustenance of man. We no longer find it a hard saying nor a dark saying that we must sustain our spiritual selves upon him, even as our bodies upon bread. So from the Gospels, Mason became convinced that any living idea, whether found in literature, art, poetry, history, science, or nature, is a true and life-giving manifestation of Christ. Dr. Bernier comments on this understanding in this way. Mason assumed that the identity of Christ as the living word reveals the true nature of all existing and living things, in particular, and their meaning in relation to Christ, who is also the truth and the life. This connection gives nature a sacred character and provides a foundation for learning as an instrument for growth in the spiritual life. So there is no such thing as a secular education. All education is to be pressed into service for the spiritual life and to help children grow in the knowledge of God. So in 1890, as Latham's book was going to press, Mason's own ideas about education had been in print for four years. Mason later distilled her philosophy into a set of 20 principles, which she called her short synopsis. And I'd like to show you her principles side by side with the principles that Latham found in the teaching ministry of Christ. Number one, children are born persons. Number two, they are not born good or evil, but with possibilities for good and for evil. Number three, the principles of authority on the one hand and of obedience on the other are natural, necessary, and fundamental. But these principles are limited by the respect due to the personality of children, which must not be encroached upon. 
In saying that education is a life, the need of intellectual and moral as well as physical sustenance is implied. The mind feeds on ideas, and therefore children should have a generous curriculum. By education as a discipline, we mean the discipline of habits formed definitely and thoughtfully, whether habits of mind or body. Physiologists tell us of the adaptation of brain structure to habitual lines of thought, i.e., to our habits. When we say that education is an atmosphere, we mean that we should take into account the educational value of his natural home atmosphere, both as regards persons and things, and should let him live freely among his proper conditions. A faulty principle laid stress of education, the preparation of knowledge and enticing morsels duly ordered upon the teacher. Children taught on this principle are in danger of receiving much teaching with little knowledge. A child has natural relations with a vast number of things and thoughts, so we train him upon physical exercises, nature lore, handicrafts, science and art, and upon many living books. As knowledge is not assimilated until it is reproduced, children should tell back after a single reading or hearing, or should write on some part of what they have read. Therefore, children should be taught, as they become mature enough to understand such teaching, that the chief responsibility which rests on them as persons is the acceptance or rejection of ideas. Now, please note that Mason was not a source for Latham, and Latham was not a source for Mason. Rather, both were looking to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Latham found the principles of education manifested in Christ's approach to his disciples, and Mason also found a code of education in the Gospels. The two sets of principles agree because they come from a study of the same Lord. Now, at some point, Mason did read Latham's book. She mentioned it in 1905, many years after laying out her own philosophy of education. And here's what she said about the book, Pastor Pastorum. Most thinking people are in earnest about the bringing up of children, but we are in danger of taking too much upon us and of not recognizing the limitations which confine us to the outworkings of personality. Children and grown-up persons are the same, with a difference, and a thoughtful writer has done us good service by carefully tracing the method of our Lord's education of the Twelve. And that thoughtful writer is Henry Latham, and she goes on to quote him using the very first quote that I open this presentation with. So this is the linchpin. If children and grown-up persons are the same, then the Lord's education of the Twelve is our pattern for educating our children. Now, I mentioned that Charlotte Mason's synopsis had 20 principles and not 19. The 20th principle is extremely important, but it came from Israel's gospel. We find it in Isaiah chapter 28. Listen to what I am saying. Pay attention to what I am telling you. Farmers don't constantly plow their fields and keep getting them ready for planting. Once they have prepared the soil, they plant the seeds of herbs, such as dill and cumin. They plant rows of wheat and barley, and at the edges of their fields, they plant other grain. They know how to do their work because God has taught them. They never use a heavy club to beat out dill seeds or cumin seeds. Instead, they use light sticks of the proper size. They do not ruin the wheat by threshing it endlessly, and they know how to thresh it by driving a cart over it without bruising the grains. All this wisdom comes from the Lord Almighty. The plans God makes are wise, and they always succeed. So I think we can state Charlotte Mason's 20th principle this way. God, the Holy Spirit, is the supreme educator of mankind. If all living ideas emanate from the Lagos, the Word, the Son of God, and if the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lift him up, then it makes perfect sense that he would be the educator of our children. My friend Paul looked for guidance on how to teach the children at his church. He didn't want to despise or offend or hinder the children. He believed that they were persons 
with a desire and a capacity to know God. He believed that these children had spiritual life and that it was not up to him to kindle that flame. He reviewed the curriculum that his pastor had given him to use with the kids. He thought it over very carefully. And then he asked the pastor for permission to do something else. On his first day of class, a small number of boys and girls sat around him. He didn't play childish songs for them or show them cartoons. He didn't have them memorize a catechism or recite a creed. He didn't tell them what to do or what to believe. Instead, he opened his Bible and he read aloud a passage from the Word of God. And then he said, Now I'd like you to tell me the story that you just heard. There was a long pause. It took a moment for the children to realize that they weren't just being asked for the right answer. It took a moment for the children to realize that they were being asked to think, to reflect, and most of all, that they were being asked to tell. The resistant boy, the boy that his mother had warned Paul about, said doubtfully, you want me to just tell the story I heard? Yes, said Paul. There was a long pause, and then this boy, who never speaks up, began to speak. And he retold in his own words the story that he had heard in the gospel of Christ. And he made his own comments and his own observations along the way. And then the other children started to do the same. Several weeks into the class, I received an email from my friend. I'd like to share with you what he wrote to me. I noticed how different the young boy is that I told you about. He's lively in sharing. At one point after we had read some scripture, I I forgot to ask them to narrate and was starting to talk about something, and the young kid just jumped up and really powerfully described the essence of the passage. The kids have become used to pulling out their Bible and are eager to go through passages when we meet and then to describe what they take from it. His boy's mom said, please tell another story like this one, like the one the other week. They love that story, and they've been talking about it. And then my friend continued with this. He said, Art, I am so far from a perfect execution of Charlotte Mason's method. But one thing for sure is that I am treating these kids like persons and not encroaching on them. This isn't to say that I'm silent in the lessons. Sometimes I'm sharing along with them. But it's more like peers all sharing together. So I'll say this about my friend. Granted, he may not be implementing a perfect Charlotte Mason method. But I can say this for sure. By following the code of education in the Gospels, he's becoming more like Christ. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.